This week, we're asking questions of the crew and our characters on making excuses. Welcome back to Making Excuses. It's me, your host, Chase Carter. Uh, This is an audio journal of my experience going back and listening to season 10 of the podcast, Writing Excuses, uh, which was set up as a sort of master's class. If this is your first time, I would implore you to go back to episode one and start there because there's some homework that is, what's the term from school? Cumulative. There's some cumulative homework that is built upon on each episode. Uh, You can start here. If you like the show, go back and I implore you to listen to episode one. So this week was a QA. and a uh, We're going to be doing one of these a month. The crew takes questions from uh, the fans and the audience. This week they had a live audience because they were at the Writing Excuses Retreat, a yearly writing retreat they do in a few places. Um, so they had a live audience for this one, but oftentimes they'll just take questions submitted from uh, fans and listeners and give a bit of pointed advice uh, answering those questions. Let's jump into what they gave as answers and what I thought was some of the more interesting bits. So starting out, um, Mary said in answer to a question about like, is it okay to write stuff that is based off of, you know, uh, things that are already written? She says, definitely, especially if you are a beginning writer, uh, that derivative stuff helps you to sort of find your chops as a beginning writer. We're often struggling to find our voice, our style, uh, what kind of writing we really are uh, strong at and what sort of stuff we really like to write. Not copying. Copying is kind of the wrong word to use there, but emulating the work of other authors uh, in other genres is a good way to sort of explore those writing styles to see what fits us. Um, Brandon agreed with her. And even Dan said uh, fan fiction is a great way to explore different genres. He claimed that a lot of young adult writers came out of fan fiction communities and online sites. And I got to agree with them. I think emulating work is a great thing. Whenever I taught journalism to uh, undergraduate students and they were having problems uh, learning certain certain writing styles, say they wanted to really get really good at feature writing or uh, investigative journalism, I told them to look into the newspapers and magazines at writers that they really enjoyed and to basically copy their work, take an article that they had and ad lib style fill in the blanks of the details of their own story just to see how it would sound and rewrite it so that way they can sort of learn the tricks and the tips that uh, really fit that sort of writing style Uh, and as it turns out when you're writing fiction uh, a lot of that is true as well mary also commented on whenever you come across something that is a similar idea to what you're already writing that has already been published um, and each of the uh, members of the crew had a book that they were chagrined to say sort of chomp their flavor a little bit but that's okay a quote that i really like from mary on this subject is she said there's a saying in public theater the only competition is a bad puppet show so if someone likes a story in your genre say that you're writing epic fantasy or you're writing um you know speculative sci-fi or you're writing regency history if they like that story they like that genre they're going to be looking for other books in that genre You don't just read one story and say, "Mm, okay, that was good. That's probably all it has to offer. Probably no more good stories to tell here. Absolutely not. Um, A genre survives because it is a rich storytelling medium, that there is a lot of work to be done here. And so if someone is doing something similar to yours, I would recommend and they recommend that you read it, consume it, see what they do. 
and see what you could do differently. Uh, Dan already talked about this a couple of episodes ago. Read that work and complement it and learn what you can from it and then say, hmm, interesting. What what would have been if they'd done it differently? What would uh, Firefly have been if they were all androids instead of humans? As, a, as an example, you can change one thing and see how the story differs and see if your story can fit into that genre then. Another question asker uh, wanted to know about anthology calls and picking up a, a call for anthology work, even if it is something you're not familiar with. Now, if you're a beginning writer or you haven't published anything, uh, this may be an unfamiliar concept to you. Um, oftentimes, different publishing companies or uh, publishing houses will put out a call for an anthology and they'll be collecting short stories or novellas from writers in a certain genre uh, because they want to uh, produce a, an anthology of all these different stories with a related theme. And oftentimes this call will say, we want a story that is you know, 5,000 words, 15,000 words, whatever it may be about a certain topic, about Westerns in space or about uh, high fantasy with a French twist, something like that because the book is going to be published with those sort of marketing notes. And the question asker wanted to know if it was okay to work on those stories or to come up with a story idea, even if you're unfamiliar with that work, I guess ostensibly to uh, sort of train your chops or step out of your comfort zone. And they said, yes, if it excites you and trying new things is always good, but don't just write a story for the sake of publishing that story because you think it might get you an opportunity. Something about that story needs to speak to you. You need to be excited and interested in the work or else it's going to be a chore and you're not really going to put your full effort into that piece. You're not going to love it. As hard as it is sometimes, you must always love your story. If you're in a relationship or if you have a relationship with any of your family members, you know that loving something is not constant. And there will come a time where you do not like the thing that you love and you do not want to be around the thing that you love or the person that you love. Or you wish that person that you loved was different or would do something differently. And a story is no different. If you feel something in that pitch for an anthology that really excites you and it sets off this chain of events or this chain of uh uh, brainstorming that gets you to a story idea by all means, but don't go out of your way and don't waste a lot of your time writing a story that you're not going to uh, end up loving at the end of it. Another question asker wanted to know about how to write about settings that you're unfamiliar with. You've never been to a setting like this uh, or you don't know much about it. How then can you make it a believable uh, setting for your character or characters to explore? Uh, and Mary had some really great advice on this. Uh, she said to accustom yourself to these unfamiliar settings, there's a couple of exercises you can do. Something that she likes to do is take a point of view character and have them walk through that setting and describe it as if they are seeing it for the first time. They'll pick up on the same details that your readers will, because if we're working in science fiction or fantasy, then we are going to be traveling to a lot of wild and weird and zany and mystical locations which means that you need to become very adroit at giving descriptions as if the person describing it has never been there before. Don't take anything for granted. Have your characters be entranced by the smallest details and the most inconsequential things to people that have lived there all your lives. Think about a time where you might have had a family member or a friend come visit your hometown uh, or the town that you're living in if it's somewhere than where you were born or grew up. And after a few years, you become accustomed to the strange and to the wild and to the wondrous stuff. But when they get down there, they'll remark upon things that you have learned to gloss over. Your mind sees it every day and so filters it out like it does so much other information. Be the newcomer. Have your point of view character be that newcomer. 
something else that you can do, and this is something I haven't done before, but I'm really interested to try it out, is to take a chapter from an author in a genre that you want to emulate. And from that chapter, rekey it, meaning to retype that chapter, the whole thing. It's a good free writing exercise. And both Howard and Mary said that what this will do is to get your brain to start picking up on the way that they write. Howard talked about tracing art, different artists. You can see the how they drew these lines and uh, how they got this sort of uh, emotion through their character or their uh, their backgrounds by using this sort of uh, shading or technique or whatever it may be. Same is true for writing. You can look at their sentence structure or the different verbs that they used or the syntax that they employed here uh, to give you a certain feeling. And then once you've rekeyed that chapter, go and write or rewrite the scene that you were having trouble with and see if that perspective, that new information, while it's still fresh on your mind, helps you to write the chapter in a way that is more pleasing or fits what you were looking for. Uh, I definitely want to try that. I don't know how it'll turn out for me personally, but I recommend that as a free writing exercise. Something else that they touched upon, which I thought was really nice, uh, was saving ideas for later. And this is something that I uh, was taught by my thesis chair, Dr. Meredith Clark, whenever I started my thesis. Uh, whenever you're in academic research and you're reading through uh, theories and you're reading through documentation and everybody else's uh, research, you're going to come across these nuggets of ideas, these kernels that you'll chew on all night long, that you'll lay in bed and think about, lie in bed and think about, excuse me, and wonder if that what what what's the what's the possibilities in there uh, what are the uh, what are the ramifications of looking into this but you can't because you have an idea already so save those ideas for later they might be useful in another story there is no need to take that interesting idea that you know aha moment that um, gee whiz uh, from the first couple of episodes and try to shoehorn it into the story you're working right now unless it's going to solve a problem that you have Always look into your idea book if you're stumped and you need a way to solve the, a plot stall or a writing block or something like that. You might have the tools already at your disposal. You just need to be reminded of that idea. We can't keep them consciously in our minds at all times. But also don't try to put them all in there. You will write another book. You can't just force a lot of ideas like you can a lot of flavors into a pie and have something taste good on the other end. Mary also talked about how putting certain ideas into a book can make it a problematic book uh, or it might kill your passion for the work because now you've got these burgeoning ideas and everything and you're trying to like make everything work at once and it's sort of a balancing act and you might lose the focus and lose the passion for the project. If that's the case, stop, put them aside and work singularly on the idea that you're working on now. Conversely, Howard talked about how if you are writing a project, maybe for an assignment uh, for an anthology or just for your own work, and you find that the passion for this work is dying because you had this great idea, but it's not really fitting, go back and try rewriting the work to fit this fresh idea that got you interested in the first place. Really go back to basics and look at that essential, intriguing quality. But if you can't rewrite the story feasibly to make it work, it's time to move on. Don't waste too much time working with that. Also, they want to mention that you do not abandon an idea just because you think that the market doesn't exist or that nobody will like it. And I've, I've listened to other episodes, and this is something that they talked about before. If you like your idea, write it. Write the book that you would want to read because I promise you, they promise you, other people will promise you, there are others out there who will like your book as well. Don't look at market trends and say, oh, my story isn't anything like that. I should shelve it and try to try to copy the market. The market changes. What people want changes. 
And your book, your story might be the innovative thing that makes the market change too. Write the book that you would want. So if you are dealing with multiple ideas, the best thing to do is kind of what we've already been doing uh, with the homework. Write the few ideas at a time, write them at the same time and see which ones really grab you the tightest. And those are the ones that you're going to want to run with. So we did that. We started with five different ideas and we're currently working them. And starting next week, I think I will be choosing one uh, to carry throughout the rest of the season because next week we're starting month two that's going to be developing up their characters. Brandon also wanted to say that chapter two is a very hard chapter. It's always a hard chapter because after chapter one, you're no longer just working with a neat idea. You're working with a book. You are tasked now with taking that project, that neat idea, and developing it into a full story with a beginning, a middle, and the end with conflict and plot and passions and promises that you have to fulfill. Uh, and that can be a little daunting, but don't stop at chapter two. Push through it. He's seen writers that have gotten into the habit of abandoning their ideas, and that's a hard habit to break, especially as a beginning author. Mary said that as beginning authors, we are still training the idea identification parts of our brain. We're not too adept at seeing the good ideas from the bad ideas. And the only way to really tell at this point is to practice, take a piece of work and finish it. They don't care. And I don't care how terrible it is or how great it is at the end. Finish the book, finish the idea. You can always go back and tweak, excise it for another project, um, or just toss it all together. That writing is not wasted. You have written it, you have learned from it, and you are a better writer at the other end. So don't give up in the middle. Okay, so that's the advice that I really enjoyed and I thought was really helpful for me personally and that I'm going to work on uh, heading forward. So now let's work uh, towards our homework exercise that they gave us. And this one comes from Dan and he says to take an idea, one of the ideas from your book or from your prompts that you're excited about, and then audition five characters for the lead role in that story. Uh, make sure they're all different from each other in ages, in genders, in professions, and all that, and, and from their backgrounds, and uh, see how that changes. See if you maybe come across something new. So for the sake of time, I did three interviews comprised of eight questions that I thought would get at the heart of who these characters are at this point in time. This is all subject to change. I'll go through the first one. I'll kind of talk about that character and if I have a better idea of who they are, and then I'll work into the second and then the third, and then some final notes. So here we go with the homework. Okay, question one. Start with an easy one. What is your name? My name is Emery Dikona. Uh, the spelling is unusual because it's derived from my mother's tongue, which is rarely spoken in this part of the world. My parents like to call me M in private, along with other silly endearments, uh, but I prefer the full Emery, if you please. Okay, uh, and what's your profession? Currently, I assist my parents in their efforts to catalog and understand natural phenomena in very regions of our world. Uh, some days, that means studying samples and recording my observations and inferences. Uh, other times, it means I copy their notes until my candle is but a waxy nub and my fingers ache. Eventually, I will be my own academic and can afford to hire a team of assistants myself. They will have the privilege then of spurning daylight and recording my important work instead. Okay. Um, briefly summarize a normal day for you. I suppose that depends on the season. We chase the springtime as best we can since the flowering plants and migrating herds are best observed then. Oh, but that's not a good answer, is it? Hmm. Stenography, scribing, and sleeping. <laughs> I am both daughter and assistant, and my parents' work leaves little time for them to keep accurate records. I learned to follow along at an early age to make sure a week's worth of camping in the hills was not 
accidentally used for tinder or blown away in the morning breeze. I eat when I can, and I eagerly seize any opportunity to conduct my own research. They don't quite approve of my independent efforts, but I have a small chest of notebooks I hope to present to the university someday. Okay, here's a hypothetical. Your house is on fire, and you only have time to grab three possessions. What do you grab? Oh, easy enough. My chest of notebooks, first. Second, my parents, who would be bent over a specimen and noting the vapors and colors it emits while burning. And uh, a yellow bow I keep in my bedstand. It belonged to a part of our family who's passed on from this life. Yeah, those three. Oh, okay. Um, all right, next question. Uh, what is your favorite, favorite leisure activity? Bread. Or rather, the eating of bread. Well, okay, first, smelling that fresh aroma as it comes out of an oven. A baker in the city that we used to live used to top his loaves with rosemary and some herb that I can't recall, but the warm little shop would be thick with this scent when I'd come in from the street. Uh, I was very good at approximating the time when he would be removing those loaves. My coins would already be on the table by the time he turned around uh, to hand me one from the middle of the tray. Those were slightly brown on top, but oh, so soft in the middle. Uh, I never made it home before devouring the whole thing. Okay, uh, have you any unique skills or abilities? Well, beyond my ability to read and write in a few languages, uh, along with my education in the study of flora and fauna, of course, I'm quite handy with the blow tube. Uh, Father often lets me tag a specimen in the field with it so we can take it back to our, uh, uh, our lab to look at. Uh, but don't worry, we use homemade paralytic that only causes slight discomfort in the specimen. No killing. Okay, another hypothetical. You're at a large festival. Where am I most likely to find you? Well, is there food? That would be the safest place to begin your search. If my mouth has already been stuffed, listen for musicians performing regionally specific music or instruments. My parents have little appreciation for those pipes and strings that are favored by the lay people we often encounter, but I never miss an opportunity to listen. Every community seems to take pride in tweaking the same old songs and making them their own. I love it. Okay, last question. How do you define trust in others? Oh, what an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever given it much thought. I've never stuck to one place long enough to make friends, or to lose them for that matter. It seems trust should be defined by the keeping of secrets or information of a deeply personal matter. Uh, perhaps I'll let you know once I confide such details in someone besides my parents. Okay, so that was the interview for uh, Emery de Conay. Uh, she's a character that I thought up for the point of view character of my book, and she was the first one. Uh, she's young-ish, I'd say in her late teens, maybe, maybe at the beginning of her 20s, I'm not sure. Uh, but she has followed around her parents as uh, an intellectual and a researcher, and they are too. So they've traveled around the world. They're not quite transient or nomadic, but they do move around and don't have a permanent location, at least as long as Emery's been alive. Except in a city where she grew up, spent her first few years, which is where she has the memory of that bread. Uh, so she is well-spoken. Uh, I put on a bit of an accent that I'm not sure what that is, but it is the cosmopolitan metropolitan accent uh, of the people. It is not a regional dialect from any small town. Uh, she also tends to use larger words and to overanalyze things. And so she doesn't give straight answers. She does like to talk a lot, kind of like me. I do take sort of the more uh, academic uh, aspects of me and uh, put them into Emery, uh, whatever that says about me. Um, but she 
she goes back and forth between sort of like rankling at being under her parents, but really appreciating the upbringing that she's had. And I, th I think we can see that in those questions. Overall, I really think she's interesting. We can hint at some loss in her life and how that's affected her, but it doesn't quite flavor all of her tongue, uh, all of her decisions. Uh, she's still sort of youthful. Um, I don't want to say naive, but innocent and really in love with the world and all the different things in it. And that's what I really love about Emery. And I think that makes for a good point of view character because we, like that point of view character, are going to be pretty innocent and pretty naive of the world that we are entering into. And so if she is our lens to view the world from, we will make discoveries along with her. Uh, this is often used in uh, high fantasy with a, a small child who leaves their hometown and discovers the world at large. They're a nice audience surrogate for that, uh, for that kind of work. So I think it's better when you have someone who is naive, but they will make decisions based on their own upbringing. So if we had Emery as our main character, she would view the world both naively, but also more analytically as a scientist, as someone from an academic background, which means that she will probably miss out on the more common sense connections between people and animals and the world itself, which could be interesting. Let's move on to our next interviewee. All right, question one, what's your name? Call me Uruguay. I never knew my parents, and the village of Tall Waters raised me, so that's as close as we both get to a surname. Okay, uh, what's your profession? I once worked wood and stone in the upkeep of homes and defenses. Some call me a carpenter, others a mason, others simply tradeswoman. But if we are reaching for labels, then builders as good as any. Okay, briefly summarize a normal day for me. I rose with the dawn. I ate breakfast and began a list of repairs and maintenance that is never completed. That's the nature of living. Persistence in a place wears it down. I attempt to slow the timbers from becoming splinters and the rocks from becoming pebbles. I broke only for meals and the necessities of the body. Uh, in the evening, I joined my apprentices and assistants for drinks and stories. Then I slept. It was a good life. Okay. Question four, and this is a hypothetical. Your house is on fire, and you only have time to grab three possessions. What do you grab? <laughs> my pants, my shoes, and my tool belt, in that order. I run from the house and check on my neighbors, and then their neighbors, and so on. At a certain point, I realize the fire consumed the southern part of town. Those old homes sat too crowded together. They were an easy meal for the hungry flames. Then I hear the screams, and immediately I run for their source. Two children stand outside a building. It's utterly consumed. They're crying and pointing. So I'm reaching for a bandana to strap across my face when the roof collapses beneath its own weight, and the flames arc higher in the night. Too late, I think, and I hoist the pair of kids under my arms. They scratch and scream, but there's nothing else to do. Uh... Okay, um, question five. What's your favorite leisure activity? I am one of those who sets out to fish in the morning, and then upon returning home late in the evening with my bucket empty, I claim that it was a day well spent. I also enjoy hearing stories of other people in other places. Uh, do you have any unique skills or abilities? Set me a task and the parameters of completing it, and I will deliver the best work of anyone twice my age or twice my experience. And that's not boasting. My hands were born for tools and the solving of problems. That's it. Okay, you're another hypothetical. You're at a large festival. Where are we most likely to find you? 
you'll find me where the darkest, wettest drink is served, especially if there are good folk one can laugh with instead of laugh at. Okay, uh, last question. How do you define trust in others? I managed a crew of eight once, and of their number, I could assign each a task at the beginning of the workday, and then I could put those tasks completely out of mind, and when I returned at the end of the day, all eight would be beaming at pride at the work that I, if I were a paying person, would certainly pay for. That is trust. Okay, Ergway, thank you. Okay, so that was my second interview with Ergway of Tallwaters. Uh, she's another character that I thought of for um, an idea that I'll probably carry on uh, into the rest of the season. Uh, she's from a small village that something happened to, and you can tell from her interview that there was uh, an incident in her past. She speaks in the past tense when she speaks about her job, and that's to allude to the fact that she no longer lives or works there. And that scene in the fire was a bit too real, right? Uh, yeah, whenever I was writing this, uh, I sort of came upon that scene and I thought, wow, this this happened to her. She lived through this uh, and it's marked her. She's a practical person. She's a she's a, con a builder. She constructs wood and stone and houses. She constructs practical things. And so she looks upon her position as one of practicality. And so this haunts her a little bit, but she can't let it define her life. She has other things to do. What those things are, we don't know, but this is the sort of person that she is. I also really liked her bluntness and I like her view of trust, right? It's really much, it's that view of trust is flavored by the job that she has or had and the life that she lived. Uh, trust means um, getting the job done, getting the work that needs done uh, completed in a way that is satisfactory or, you know, more than satisfactory. And so she measures trust by being able to assign tasks to people and have those things be done in a manner that she would want done. Uh, it's a workman's perspective. Uh, and so she has that wisdom and she has that worldview. And that makes her a very interesting character. I also like her being this like gruff character, you know, not exactly manly, but salt of the earth. Um, she's lived enough and she knows enough that she's not, um, you know, she's not like a country bumpkin, a backwater person who wasn't educated, but her entire worldview was to this village and she didn't have to think about much outside of that village. So uh, now that she doesn't live there, what has changed about her? She's had to expand her worldview in order to survive, and I wonder how that's, you know, changed her as a character. I'd like to explore that. So I think that she'd be a good character for, uh, as a protagonist in the story, because that practicality, especially in a uh, fantasy novel, can lead to some interesting consequences. I'd point to Davos Seaworth in Game of Thrones. In a world of dragons and magic and reincarnation and um, others from beyond the wall in a, in a land of winter and all this, he is simply one man trying to be loyal to his king. And because of this, he is really my favorite character. I like Davos the most because he looks at all that and he realizes it's a part of his world, but it's just nothing that he can contend with. So in light of dragons and magic and world-ending conflicts, Davos does what he can do what needs to be done, and what he can feasibly accomplish. And I view Urgway of Tallwaters as a very Davos-inspired character. She would have that same mindset. Okay, let's move on to our last interviewee. Okay, hello there. Uh, first question, what's your name? Janine Hatch, former 2nd Infantry in defense of the capital's people and property. All right, and uh, what's your profession, Janine? I am a professional port sitter. <laughs> well... I was a soldier once, dutiful and proud, but an injury gave me a limp and high command gave me a medal. 
In time, the metal got dusty and the leg got worse, so I was reassigned to guard assets deemed vital to the capital's continued prosperity. The Decona family. Okay, uh, can you briefly summarize a normal day for you now? I wake up, and I curse the green gods for fucking up my leg and fucking up my career. Then I get some breakfast. I spar with young Emery, who will one day embarrass a fine man into marriage with those skills. I care for my gear like I'll ever receive a letter ushering me back into active service. Then I amble through town, speaking with the locals about blights and predators beyond the tree line and other rural superstitions until my leg begins to ache. Then I curse the gods some more. Return back to the family's home and sit on the porch, drinking until there's no light left to see by. Uh, oil my blades for the thousandth time and prepare a missive to the capital detailing livestock and harvests and moonshine, I guess. For the continued prosperity of our people and property. Okay, question number four. This is a hypothetical. Your house is on fire and you only have time to grab three possessions. What do you grab? My blades first, if they aren't already on my person. Uh, then the nearest civilian, who's lost all sense of caution and safety in the turmoil. And a bottle. Fleeing fire is thirsty work, and the liquor would only feed the inferno, yeah? Okay, uh, what's your favorite leisure activity? <sighs> leisure merely gives my god's damned leg an opportunity to remember it should be making my life hell, so I keep my hours as busy as possible. Honestly, sparring with the young Dakona child is the best part of my day. She reminds me of a youth that I pissed away drilling and training. So when I trounce the sapling, I can almost believe that time hasn't taken my best years from me yet. Have you any unique skills or abilities? Keep tight your purse strings if there are dice in my hand. Soldiers have ought to do on duty but lying and dicing, and I was never one for spinning yarns. Okay, uh, another hypothetical. You're at a large festival. Uh, where are we most likely to find you? Uh, am I on duty or no? Okay, here's the most interesting answer. I don't like big crowds. They're invitations for troublemakers and miscreants. So any time that I attend, most of my time is spent eyeing the hands and purses of everyone there. I never have any time for fun. That's honestly the best part of living in this bumpkin town. Very little crime. A girl can get appropriately soused and relax when they throw a party. Okay, how do you define trust in others? Can I turn my back on them without it itching? That's not trust, but it's a start. Now, can I put a blade in your hands and then turn my back? Yeah, that's trust. Okay, and that was my interview uh, with Janine Hatch, or Janine Hatch. Um, she's based off of a French hero back in the 1400s a little bit. Uh, I really like the older female soldier archetype who has been forced into retirement. And she's got a lot of a lot of resentment about the details of the incident that put her there. She's sort of been raised as a soldier. It's the only life she knows. And as much as she sort of hates part of it, it's something that has given her life purpose. And it sort of shaped her existence for the, be you know, as she says, the best years of her life. And so now that she's had to retire in her prime or just past her prime when she thought that she could make high command or, you know, rise up the ranks a little bit, it rankles her. Uh, and she hates the place that she's in, but it is still serving. And so she cannot be outwardly resentful about it. So she makes the best by being sarcastic. She has all of the classic uh, soldier tropes, I think, or a lot of them. Likes to dice, likes to drink, likes to party whenever she's off duty. But she recognizes the potential in other people. She seems to have... Uh, developed a friendship with uh, Emery Dicona, which is interesting because they sort of come from very different worlds. 
Emery is an intellectual. She's not exactly trained to follow orders. She wants to be out on her own, an independent academic. While uh, Janine is a soldier, very used to following orders. Orders are her life. So the fact that they get along is an interesting one. And I think that's a friendship that I would like to um, I would like to explore, especially if they set off on some adventures together. So at the end of the day, I really like Janine. Uh, I like the older characters because they have set opinions about the world. And when they're faced with new circumstances and they have to reevaluate their life and their beliefs, that leads to a lot of internal conflict. And that internal conflict and growth is very interesting. I'm also of the opinion that people can change no matter how old they are. It's just that change gets harder. So it makes older characters much more interesting to read about, especially because fantasy is often filled with younger people, boys and girls with an epic destiny or children raised to be a certain kind of people. So that was the interviews. I really like this as a writing experiment. I would definitely try it out especially if you're not sure about which character you want to carry forward. So starting next week, we will be getting into characters. I don't know if these three will be uh, reappearing or if we'll get some more ideas. We'll see about next week. But this Q&A was a nice break from regular talking. We got to explore some ideas that are uh, off the beaten track from our syllabus, but still good things to talk about as uh, beginning or amateur writers here. So as always, uh, I implore you to go find me on Twitter. I'm at Chase Writes. Uh, you can also find the show on iTunes. Be sure to give us a rate and a review um, and subscribe to the podcast as well. Those rates and those reviews help this podcast get up the charts so people who might like this sort of thing can find it more easily. Uh, if you go to my website, ChaseWritesThings.com, you can also find my other writing. I'm trying to put out a couple articles a week on different topics. I'll write about culture and games and uh, books that I'm reading or different stuff that really uh, excites me. This week, I've got an article. Well, last week, I got an article about uh, Jean Bois' um, latest project, 17776. And I also read a little bit about a mobile game called Magikarp Jump. I implore you to check it out. But until next week, have a good one and happy writing. Happy writing.